For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So three weeks ago, we were talking about Hebrews 11, and we were talking about the issue of faith. That's really what Hebrews 11 is about. And it has sort of this defining uh, passage of, you know, you ask most theologians, how do you define faith? And they'll say, Hebrews 11, 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we talked about how there were kind of two elements to that. It was believing God's promises is one, trusting God, and then putting them into action. That it's trust and action put together is that picture of biblical faith. And that this is what God wants from us. A lot of us are like, God, what do you want from me? There's only one answer. Faith. He wants you to trust him in a relationship with him. He wants you to benefit as your creator and your designer. He made you to, to experience fellowship with him and fellowship with others. The love of God and the love of your fellow man. And that it's through faith in God that we really learn to access and experience those things the way that we're meant to. And so we talked about that. And, you know, another way of talking about believing God's promises and putting them into actions would simply be to say prioritizing God's values in the way you live your life. Like, what is it that's important to God And are we living as though the things that are important to us are also the things that are important to God? Or is there a dissonance between that where we get distracted? The world system offers all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds. We're constantly being bombarded with things to live for. Whether it's stuff or whether it's career or whether it's power or whether it's comfort, we're always being bombarded with that stuff. And God says there are are things that are more important than others. And the spiritual things are actually the most important thing in this life because they are the only thing that continue on into the next life. And there's lots of things that fall under that category of spiritual things. Primarily, relationship, love, our connections with one another. We can't take our stuff with us, but we can take one another. And what we build here in this life will continue on into eternity, both in our relationship with God and also in our relationship with fellow believers. And that's an awesome vision. So in the second half of Hebrews 11, we're going to get more practical. What the author does is he just starts giving examples of people who have lived lives of incredible faith and been used by God in powerful ways. And what I want to do is just extract three principles for living faithfully from those examples. The first principle is making the word of God more important than the opinions of people. That's a huge part of prioritizing God's values. Because our culture will share a lot of opinions with us about the things that we should be living for. And a lot of people, you know, they think spirituality is good, it has its place, you know, but it should be a a, a smidgen, a a corner of your life. You don't want to get super into spirituality because that makes you weird. Our culture will tell you that we should have a little corner cut out, maybe for an hour or two on Sunday morning, you know, and that's, that's good. Keep it, you know, really what they say and what they want is keep your spirituality out of my life. 
God says, this is the most important thing. It's the answer to the question that burns in our hearts. Why am I here and what am I supposed to do? So our author, starting in Hebrews 11, verse 7, uses his first example. He says, by faith, Noah, he's going all the way back there to Genesis, being warned by God about things not yet seen in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. He's saying, you think about, you know, prioritizing spiritual things and what it means to trust God and put God's word into action. How about Noah as an example? We read in Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You know, one of the things they teach you in Bible interpretation is to look for repeated statements right? And it's like, man was bad. He was really bad. He was evil. He was only evil continually in one verse. He's saying things were really, really bad, bad in a way they aren't now. The intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Everybody was focused on self, Selfishness, greed, violence, rape, murder were running rampant in the human race. It was spinning out of control. We read on in Genesis 6, 11 through 12. He says again, and look at the repetition. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. That word in the Hebrew, literally translated, is destroyed. What God is saying was, things got so bad, man destroyed what God had intended. It was ruined. And so he found one man with a willing heart to put faith in. And he said, I want you to build a giant boat like has never been built before in the desert. And it's going to take you most of your life to build it, most of your resources, and no one's going to understand why. We read in Genesis 6, 13 through 14, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. That's the flood. He says, Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, you should make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. Now, this is, you know, this is a difficult story to believe for a lot of different reasons. And even Christians struggle to understand. And we could get into the details of the different ways of interpreting this and understanding this. And that stuff has value, but it's not the point. If we were doing a, ch- a teaching on Genesis chapter 6, that's where we would be. But instead, the point I want to make to you is the idea that there's a worldwide flood and every animal, he's going to build a boat that every animal could go into is far-fetched for us. Imagine how far-fetched it was for him. This is what God is asking one man to do as his life's work. How difficult would it be to be like, whatever you say, God, I'll do it. Noah's faith is remarkable. 
He lives in, like we said, the most corrupt time in human history, in the middle of the desert. And God says, spend your whole life and all of your resources building a boat that could never be carried to the water. It's not anywhere near the water. He says, do this because I'm going to send a flood. And Noah says, okay. So he believed God. He put God's word into action, and he looked like an idiot for years. Imagine how he would have been mocked. Hey, Noah, how's the boat going? I think it, I think it rained a little last night. You know, as people looked on these wicked, evil, and corrupt people, right, it must have just been like the most hilarious joke in town. That crazy old fool Noah got a message from God and is building a boat in the middle of the desert. What a fool. Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 38, that during the time of Noah, for in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. It wasn't like there were all these precursors, you know, earthquakes and, and you know, uh, climate change and all these things that were like warning symbols, right? Noah was out there saying, no, I'm building the boat because God is going to judge the earth. You should help me. You should get on board. Peter tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was proclaiming. But it was just Noah in the desert making a boat. You know, people are looking around, they're like, it doesn't rain much here to begin with. And everything went on the way that it always had until the day the storm came, Noah got in the boat, and it says God closed the door to the boat, sparing Noah from the action of judging his fellow man. Noah chose to believe God rather than what he could see with his own eyes. That's not to say that he didn't have evidence, but, you know, it, given what his experience of the area and the climate and all those things would have been, you know, the idea that there's going to be a flood here requiring a giant boat to save all animal life was pretty far-fetched. Except for one thing, God had spoken to him and told him. And so he had to trust God more than his experience. He had to choose to believe God rather than going along with what everyone else did. You know, it's so much easier. You know, if there had been a bunch of people saying, God spoke to me too, and he also wants me to make a boat, Imagine how much easier it would have been. But if you're the only one, you're called to do something that everybody else looks at as a crazy waste of your life and your wealth. You're the only one. But God spoke, and it was more important than what people thought. He chose to act as though a flood were coming because God said a flood was coming. And that opens up, I think, a host of questions for us and how we live our lives. And, you know, this is the part where you're like, ooh, is he going to, like, bludgeon us with hard questions about, you know, do we have the faith of Noah? Yes, I am. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm just saying, you know, it's good from time to time to try to, like, step back and, and do, a, like, a 
a gut check. You know, to ask yourself some questions about how you're living and about how you're prioritizing the things of God. Not because we need shame or, you know, guilt. Those aren't good motivations. The love of God is the only good motivation there is. But um, we can get so caught up in the day-to-day grind of life that we stop thinking about, okay, does my life reflect what I believe is most important to me? Because we can start prioritizing things that if you asked us, they said, was that an important thing to you? We'd be like, no, not at all. But yet, actually, the way we're living our lives indicate that that is very important to us. So it's good to step back. You know, is my life oriented toward, and am I prioritizing comfort or influence or power? Is that what I'm actually living for? It's not that those things are necessarily bad, But if you've oriented your life towards those things as the goal, then where is God? Am I living my life? Am I willing to sacrifice those things? My life's not perfect. I do selfish things. But in general, can I say, the goal of my life is a life of service and sacrifice and love. Is that an honest assessment of of how I've set things up? Is that where I'm at? And, you know, can I do more things to to move in that direction? Do I live my life as though I believe the true reward, the true wealth of existence is not to be obtained in this life but in the next one? Am I oriented that way? Am I... Am I committed to the priorities of God? Or have I slowly, did I start that way and did I live that way for a time and I've just sort of slowly moved away in a way that I didn't even realize because I have to stop every once in a while and I have to, I have to look at my life and I have to say, is what I'm doing a reflection of the values that I want to have? It's important to do that. What kind of life are you living? Are you invested in people? You know, as we get older, it gets harder and harder to be invested in people. I don't know why. I think, you know, when you're young, you know, uh, you're learning a lot of things and you're around a lot of different people and there seems to be a lot more traffic in your life. And as you get older and you get through college, you get into your career, you know, your coworkers start to say basically the same, your neighbors start to stay basically the same. And it's like, you know, there's fewer people in your life and you sort of begin to depend on and rely on the, the historical relationships that are there. And those are very important. We shouldn't give those up. But we also need to make room for hurting people, for new people. We need to be proactive about reaching out with the love and truth of God to bring new people into our lives and invest in them. Because like we said, that's the only thing we take with us is our relationships. So the more invested you are in people, the more wealthy you, you are in the next life. And you're like, what does that mean? Like God's going to give me gold in the next life because I invest in people? No, the gold is the people. That's the gold. That's the reward. And you're like, I don't know how rewarding people are, Ryan. <laughs> I know, but in the next life, they're not fallen. They're fixed, and they're amazing. They're image bearers of the creator God of the universe, and our ability to be close and to be connected 
is unfettered. It's, right now, it's hard because we have issues. We have baggage. But God's going to slough those bags away, and then we're going to be with each other. How invested are you in your spiritual development? If spiritual things are the most important things, because they're the only things that, that go on into eternity, you know, are you invested in prayer? Are you invested in getting to know God better? Are you invested in serving? Are you, are you trying to grow spiritually? And are you putting yourself in a place where you're maybe going beyond what's comfortable in order to be stretched a little bit? That's another thing that I've found, you know, not only as I get older am I like physically less flexible, but I'm also mentally and emotionally less flexible. I start feeling like, mm, I don't know how much I want to stretch. I've stretched enough. I, you know, I just, is it okay just to say this is as flexible as I want to be with people? And the answer is no. That's really just all you're saying is I'm going I'm to plateau spiritually and I'm not going to grow anymore this side of the grave. We should be striving to grow and move beyond what's comfortable. Another great question to ask from time to time is, what am I modeling for my children? Sometimes people feel like, especially when their kids are young, they feel like, oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to get them involved in everything, and I've got to give them everything that I didn't have, and we're going to do lots of activities, and we're going to be involved in all these things, and I'm going to build my life around my kids because my kids are so important, and I love them, and God wants me to love my kids. But when we don't model for our kids that we are into serving other people, not just within the family, and relating to other people, not just within the family, and when we're not willing to make sacrifices and the hobbies and the things that we would like to do in order to have time to invest in others, then what are our kids learning about how important spiritual things are? The best parents are parents who love their children very much, but love them enough to know that they have to model investment in other people and in God in order for their kids to have the fullest kind of life that God would want for them. My kids are getting older. My son moved out of the house. My daughter is taking her driver's test on Wednesday. She's going to be okay. It's all of you that scare me. <laughs> that thought, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, you know, kids are getting older. What have we modeled for them? What did we do for them when they were young? You know, in a lot of ways, at 16 and 18, like, we still have a lot to offer, but the things that we really needed to get in on the ground floor, we either did or we didn't at this point. You know, not that people don't change, but like, to get in when your kids are really young, one, two, three years old, and to be modeling and talking about the Lord and reading the Bible with them and, and, and taking them with you to serve and, and teaching them the importance of that is so good and it's so important. And it's so hard because uh, it's one of the most difficult times of life. Having a, a young family, you're new in your career, you're not making enough money, and... Uh, you're totally drawn thin in terms of what you have to do with your time. But that's what this is about, isn't it? What do you do with the time that you have? 
Are, is it so important? Are spiritual things so important that even during those difficult times, you'll make a substantial investment there? Or is it, well, it's just too difficult of a stage of life right now. We'll get to it later. What are your priorities if that's what you're saying? We should wrestle with those things. Another thing that I've noticed as people get into my age is their kids start making decisions about career and school and what they're going to do. And, you know, they start making, like, when your kids are little, they're not making a lot of decisions that are going to lock them onto a path, right? But they get into their junior, senior year of high school, and it seems like the, the consequences, the potential consequences go up. And they're going to be making decisions about where do they go to school and, or, you know, what trade are they going to get into and what are they going to do as a career. And I've, I've seen a lot of parents who made really faithful, radical decisions themselves in that area. This is interesting. A lot of really spiritual Christian men and women have made radical decisions to put the things of God first in their lives and they are glad for it, and they do not regret it, and yet they're terrified of their children making those same kinds of decisions. They're almost blind to the fact that their kids need to make the kinds of decisions that they made. And you wonder about that. You say, why is that? You know, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. It's like, I've interviewed people and I've said, you know, are you, you know, you sacrificed some things, you know, you gave up that promotion or you did this and, you know, do you regret doing that? And they're like, oh no. And I'm like, then why are you kind of pushing your kid to make the opposite decision? And I think what it is, is I think that we're terrified of letting our kids down. It's almost scarier to screw up your kid's life than it is your own. And the pressure of that can become an idol, can become a reason to not prioritize the things of God. You've got to trust your kids into God's hands and trust that if they're prioritizing spiritual things, that that's the best that the thing that they could possibly do, even though it's scary and it might limit some of the material things that they get to do. It's not just about making that decision for yourself. It's also about helping others, especially your kids, make that decision. What about retirement? How do the priorities of God play into your retirement plans? That's something, you know, in our culture, I think the idea of retirement is you work really hard, you, you save, you put away, you earn, and then, you know, you get freedom. And what that freedom means in, I think, the eyes of our culture is you get to do whatever you want to do. You don't have to be responsible to anyone for anything. You put in your time, and now it's me time. How does that fit with a life of service and self-sacrifice? No one's saying that, you know, as we get older, we need rest, you know, and, and if, if we've saved up enough that we should, you know, to stop, you know, working in your career and, and make time. But, you know, what are you going to do with that time? If your retirement looks like a Merrill Lynch commercial, do you think those guys consult God and his priorities when they make their retirement goals? No, it's all about comfort and 
living as long as you possibly can and being taken care of and traveling the world and playing golf and, you know, these all kinds of things, none of which are bad. Unless they become what you are living your life for. And you live a life of faith all the way through some of the really hard stuff and then you get to retirement and you decide without even thinking, I'm free to live selfishly now. You can use that radically. You can have fun and you can rest and you can do a lot of the things that you would like to do. You can, you can write your book, write your memoirs, right? But don't forget to radically prioritize the things of God and to make that the number one priority in your retirement plan. How am I going to do more With the time that I get back from not having to work, how am I going to be able to invest more in the things of God? Because those are the things that matter. If you live a life of faith, your life will not look like everyone else around you. Guaranteed. You will be, well, let's face it, weird. You'll be weird because our culture is broken. You don't want to live like everyone else. We're the most medicated, suicidal, depressed, divorced, disjointed, alienated, and alone culture in history. Don't be like everyone else. Be filled with love and relationship with the God of the Bible and with important work to do that matters in eternity and be filled with it for your whole life. Okay, that was just the first one, so we're going to have to speed things up a little bit. (laughs) The second one is about surrendering control to God. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called up, obeyed by going out to a place which uh, which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith... He lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in the tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Isn't that interesting? He didn't know where he was going. God said, Abraham, and he said, yes. And he said, go that way. And he said, okay. And he got very specific. If you look at Genesis 12:1, the call of God to Abraham, God fully knows and even emphasizes what he's asking Abram to leave behind. He says to Abram, go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. Leave everything familiar, leave everything that you know, leave everything you're invested in, leave the people who know you and the people who are invested in you and go that way. Why do we all know the name of Abraham? Why is he one of the pinnacle, most incredible examples of faith in human history? Because he believed God and trusted him and put God's word into action, giving up what to many of us is so precious. Imagine yourself, Abraham, that conversation with God. You know, I'm sure we don't get the whole conversation. But God says, you know, Brian, 
I want you to leave your country and your family and your home, and I want you to go east. Can you tell me where I'm going? No. Will it, what, what will it be like? You'll see. What happens if I don't go? I'll call someone else. You won't get to go. Will it be safe? No. That's the conversation I would have had with God. I don't know whether Abraham had it or not. I think it's a, it's, it's a reasonable conversation to have. And are those answers sufficient? For Abraham, they were. Hebrews 11.10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. That's kind of a weirdly worded statement. What is it that he's saying? What he's saying was he left a human city built by human hands, knowing that his ultimate destination would be an eternal city built by the hands of God, and that that was more important to him. Being with God and investing in eternal things was the end goal, sum of his values and his life. Why stay in this brick and mortar city when God has called me to his service? And the end goal of that service is eternity in the city that God built. And he built it for us. What an amazing picture trusting the spiritual reality of God's promises over the material security of his home. Very easy to grab conceptually, very difficult to live, very difficult to put into practice. We want guarantees. God, will you protect me from evil? No. Will you make me wealthy? Not in the way you mean. The only guarantee that you get is that he loves you and he knows what's best. And if you follow him, if you say yes to him, your life will have more meaning, it will have more purpose, it will have more joy, and it will echo in eternity with the stories of your faith. You know, one of the things that's really amazing, I think, about Hebrews 11, it's often referred to as the Faith Hall of Fame, Right? And I don't think it's finished, right? I think there'll be an eternal hall of fame. And I think they're still taking entries. The stories of how we live our lives can be told in eternity. How do you want your story to be told? How do you want it to be written? Do you want to live a life like Abraham? Or do you want to lay low and play it safe? Be comfortable have a place for God in your life, but not be radical in the way that he was. Jesus said in Luke 6, 47 to 49, everyone who comes to me and hears my word and acts on them, I will show you who he is like. He is like a man building a house dug deep and laid a foundation on rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation, and the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of the house was great. What is the foundation of your life? What is it built upon? 
Is it built upon the love of God and the love of your fellow man? Because if it, if it is, then what you're building will stand the test of eternity. But if it's built on the shallow things of the material world, it will get wiped out. As surely as we will die, what we invest in will be gone. And there's no need to read a threat into this. It's not as though God is warning you he's going to destroy your house if you don't follow him. It's just good investment advice. If you invest in good, solid, spiritual things, you will get a return on your investment. If you don't, if you don't save and you don't put away, then you will experience financial ruin. That's the consequence of making those choices, not a threat that God is going to punish you. It's God giving us wisdom about what really matters and how things really work. We say, okay, God, just tell me what you want. Answer all my questions, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. Give me a sign, a beam of light. Reverse the flow of a river. Cause an earthquake, and then maybe I'll follow. And God says, yeah, but what I want from you is trust. I want you to trust me. I'll give you evidence. There's lots of evidence. But what there isn't is compulsion. He's not going to do something that is so undeniable in your life that to not follow him would be crazy. He does that very rarely. The best example, I think, is Paul. Jesus showed up, said, why are you persecuting me? Struck him blind. And Paul was a Christian. Because he had seen something that was undeniable, and it changed his life. And his conversion was obviously real, and his faith was real. But he said, I am the least of all the apostles. He had the least faith because he needed this incredible intervention. And God wants us to trust him based on the evidence that he's provided. Not on these glorious miracle expectations, but in trust. The third point and the final point is that we have to act on the truth even when we have doubts. Hebrews 11, 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of her life, well beyond the proper time of her life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That's interesting. Sarah was told in her 80s or 90s that she, who had been barren her whole life that she and Abraham were going to have a kid and from them an entire nation would spring. And she was like, Really? I'm like 90 and I'm going to bear a nation. We read in Genesis 18:12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Have I become old? After I have become old, shall I pleasure my Lord being old also? And God said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I'm so old? She's laughing in the presence of God about the promises of God, and this exchange just cracks me up. God says, is there anything that's too difficult for the Lord? 
At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, you and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> I heard it. We both know it's true. And I'm still going to make good on my promises. And so she was required to take steps of faith to see the promises of God happen. Romans 4, 19 through 21 puts it in an interesting way. It says, without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. He's like, really, you're gonna, I'm going to make a baby. <laughs> and the deadness of Sarah's womb which had also been her entire life. He said, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. I got to wonder if that's like a weird pun that's hilarious. (laughs) He was able to perform by the power of God and a nation was born. They had a choice. They didn't have to listen to the word of God. They could have assessed their situation and just said, "Eh eh-eh, nope, those days are gone, not interested. God, you're going to have to find some other way. In fact, they kind of did that a little bit. And then God said, no, that wasn't wasn't what I was talking about. And then they were like, okay, we'll do it your way. Incredible action, even in the face of doubts. Hebrews 11, 13 through 14, all these Examples died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Abraham and Sarah didn't see a nation born, but they saw their children born and knew that if they could have kids because God had promised it and God had promised they would become a nation, then just as surely as God's promises to them had been fulfilled, they knew. A nation would come from their kids. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, a home, a citizenship that is not of this earth. They are seeking a country of their own. That's so similar to the previous statement that it was they were seeking a city not built with the hands of men, but built by God. They were seeking a country, a nationality a citizenship, not of a, 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 a man-made state, but of God's kingdom, the nation of God himself. And this is the secret to their faith. They lived, all these people lived as though this life was not their home. They were just passing through. You know, it's different when you decide to make a home somewhere, you start getting to know the neighbors, you start, you know, fixing the place up, you start investing because it's your home and you're going to be there for a while, you know, but when you get a hotel, you don't start putting spackle on the walls, you're just there for the night, you don't go knock on the doors and bring a big gift basket to, you know, the person in the hotel, welcome to the neighborhood, right? Right? There's no need to make an investment there because you're just passing through. 
But you are investing in the things that, that matter, the things that impact, the things that affect your true home. And they knew that their true home was in heaven with God. It says they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's how they lived. We do not belong here. We don't fit. We're going to bring others along. We're going to love people and we're going to invite them into the eternal life with God that he has shared with us. But we are not going to live like this is all there is. That word strangers is xenos. And if we Englishify it and transliterate it and bastardize it, we get xenos. Now, I'm not a big fan of the name Xenos. Um, it's weird. I hate getting phone calls at the office uh, thinking we're somehow like a copy machine repair company. <laughs> People say, what church do you go to? You say, Xenos. And they're like, uh, uh-huh. What does that mean? And I just spent like an hour telling you, explaining to you what the name means. Because it takes some time. But what I do love about the name is what it means. It means that we are a community of people who are committed to loving God and loving our fellow man and not living as though this is our final destination. We are passing through this life. Some of us get 70, 80 years, maybe a little bit longer. But in the eyes of eternity, that is a blip on the radar screen. It is a blink of the eye. And so let's live for the next life. Which consequently means living a full life now. But it's not the life that people in our culture think matters. Let's be Xenos. Let's be strangers passing through. And 15, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. They weren't pining for the place that they had left. It's not that, they, that Abraham went out from Ur and every morning woke up and thought, oh, Ur, why did I leave? It was so comfy there. Dad was there. I had a house. Now I'm carrying around a tent. I'm riding a camel. I'm in the desert. He says, no, that's not what he was doing. He wasn't thinking about Ur. He was thinking about the future, where he was going and what God had in store for him. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. The take-home here, I think, is relatively simple to understand and a little bit complicated to live. But the first thing before we get to that is the take-home for you if you don't have a relationship with God is to establish a new citizenship. To let Jesus Christ into your life. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Some of you are here. You've been invited by friends. They've been, maybe they've been harassing you for weeks or months. Just come once. Just see what it's like. Just, just try right? And some of those who are here know that there's something missing from their lives. They know that there's an emptiness, there's a lack of 
purpose. They feel like an engine that's not running on all its cylinders, and they've tried different things to fix that, and nothing has worked. That's who Jesus is talking about here, that you can come and you can open your heart to God and he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. You just have to come to that point where you recognize, you realize, I'm not going to fix this on my own. I need God's help. I am not all powerful. I have not lived a perfect life. I can't do it on my own. I can't make myself fulfilled. I can't make myself complete. God, will you let Jesus' death apply to me? Will you bring me into your family? Can I be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And his promise to you is that the answer is yes. It's yes. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've hurt. It doesn't matter what you've ruined. He will receive you as a son or a daughter if you put your faith in him. And once you do that, then it's time to think about what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There are people all over the world who have a faith relationship with Jesus Christ and we have more in common with them as Christians than we do with many of our fellow Americans. Because that is our true home, our true nationality, our true identity is the kingdom of heaven. And that binds us together in ways that are exceptionally cool when you experience them. I just spent two weeks in Cambodia hanging out with a couple hundred Cambodians who culturally couldn't be as different. There was a language barrier, there was a culture barrier, but it was sweet fellowship because we had the same spirit and the same goals and the same word and the same passion and the same citizenship. And there are, there's much more that we have in common with them because they understand putting spiritual things first. And so that's the other take-home is live a life as a citizen of God's kingdom. That's what he wants us to do. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Jesus said, Don't store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For your treasure, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Of course, Jesus would sum it up better than I ever could, better than anyone ever could. Live your life for the treasure of heaven, which is people and God. And nothing can ruin that. Nothing can take that away. No moth can eat it. No rust can destroy it. No thief can steal it. It's secure in the hands of our loving Father. So there we got Hebrews 11. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.